power. Power is all around us. Power comes in all shapes and sizes. Last Sunday, as my family enjoyed some lunch with some friends after church, we saw the sky grow darker and darker and darker still. As it turned more ominous, we were advised by some other church members to go ahead and order another round of appetizers and stay put. It was going to get a little bouncy outside. And sure enough, it did. With a crash and a boom and a gust, we saw straight line winds in excess of 80 miles an hour blow through our fair city and render homes and businesses and intersections without power. Power. It comes and it goes. It brings with it great potential. It brings with it great danger. It is the thing that defines much of the modern era. As our home was without power, we plotted and schemed as to where we might bunk for the night should our outage be prolonged. Because with power comes air conditioning. And some of us sleep like we're polar bears. Micah has said in chapter 1 that disaster is coming to Israel because of their idolatry. In chapter 2, we saw that Israel was a place of oppression. And here, we're going to see yet more about Israel's condition. And I believe, beloved, if we listen carefully to God's word, if God, um, by his spirit, would speak to us this day through his word, what we're also going to find is that we're not so different, you and I, separated by many millennia. Chapter 3 is going to show us that idolatry and oppression were being carried out by a misuse of power. So we're going to read Micah chapter 3 this morning. I invite you to stand. The text is printed for you there in your program. Follow along with me as I read aloud. And I said, hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, 
but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners be put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. It's given to us. Father, would you shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as me only? For he alone has the words of life. So we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Be seated if you would. This morning we're going to think about power. Power is something that we all have. All of us have power. It's something that we have all experienced, and it's something that we all have uh, misunderstood to one degree or another. So I want to see our study of this text go in three ways. First, I want to think about the misuse of power. The second thing I want to do is I want to think about the proper use of power. And then finally, the thing I want to think about is the renewal of power, the renewal of power, okay? First of all, let's talk about power misused. Um, Hear the words of the prophet here in verse 1. And I said, hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? So what has God appointed these rulers of this nation to do? God has appointed these rulers to lead and rule and to bring about flourishing, to bring about flourishing. The national leaders are supposed to know this and bring about this glorious task as part of their God-given responsibility. Now we hear, we hear this summons to power and it rings foreign to us. It rings foreign because the idea of cultivation, the idea of the common good, and the idea of stewardship are all missing from our common anthropology. Those words sound like buzzwords. They sound like the campaign of someone trying to tell us 
how to spend our money and what we should value. But beloved, let me, let me propose to you today that I believe all of us are missing, to some degree or another, this idea of, pro, of using our God-given gifts and talents and abilities to promote flourishing. That sounds very foreign to us. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, and by the way, I'm going to quote Crouch's book a lot this morning because he said it better I'm still learning, and I don't feel comfortable yet to be able to uh, wade into some of these things without quoting someone else. Okay? Here's what he says. He says, every Christian, no matter how devout, no matter how well-meaning, has a functional Bible. That is to say they have a Bible that they tend to focus the most energy on. And he notes that tragically, for many Christians, their functional Bible begins at Genesis chapter 3 and ends at Revelation chapter 20. Now, what does that mean? It means that it begins at fall and ends at judgment. That is not a cheery picture of redemption. It starts with bad news. It ends with more bad news. But here's what he argues. He argues that there are four chapters that are essential that must be in every Christian's functional Bible. Now, I grant you, you may not be doing your quiet time in Numbers, Leviticus, or 2 Chronicles. And that's okay. Okay, the Psalms are admittedly more um, accessible than begats. But every Christian has got to have these four chapters in their functional Bibles because it is what defines and gives scope to all that, get, all that God began to do in creation and all that God is still yet going to do, culminating in new creation. He says to miss these two chapters, these four chapters, the first two about creation, the second two about new creation, is to miss the whole point of the biblical story. What these chapters drop out of our functional Bibles, our understanding of culture, power, and salvation becomes badly weakened. And he goes on and he says this, that when we understand the Bible only through fall and judgment, the gospel runs an abbreviated gamut. The original good creation and the glorious new creation are afterthoughts if they're mentioned at all. I want to read this quote in its entirety, so hang with me. Crouch says this. He says, on the very first page of the Bible, then, power, flourishing, and image-bearing are all connected. 
Power is for flourishing, teeming, fruitful, multiplying abundance. Power creates and shapes an environment where creatures can flourish, making room for the variety, diversity, and unpredictability of coral reefs and tropical forests, but also the surprising biological richness of high deserts and ocean depths. And image-bearing is for power, for it is the creator's desire to fill the earth with representatives who will have the same kind of delighted dominion over the teeming creatures as their maker, which means image-bearing is for flourishing. The image-bearers, that's you and I, do not exist for their own flourishing alone, but to bring the whole creation to its fulfillment. This is significant because this means that there is an inherent responsibility, there is an inherent creativity, an inherent authority imbued in being image bearers. Now, There are things, if you're in a theological discussion, you would hear this idea of something being a creation mandate. If you've heard creation mandate before, give me one of these. Some of you have, some of you haven't. That's cool. I want you to think about it this way. The creation mandates, and there are three of them, happened before the fall, okay? It happened before sin corrupted. One of them was Sabbath and rest. One of them was work and labor, which is why, by the way, I think in the new creation, work and labor isn't going to stop. It's just not going to be onerous and terrible. The third thing that was a creation mandate is marriage. That's why we believe that marriage is not a Christian right, but a universal right. And because marriage is woven into the fabric of creation, that's why we think it's a big deal about who gets married to whom. That means if cultivation if flourishing, if working towards the good of both subduing the creation and bringing about the delight and the glory and the creativity of the creator is given as the responsibility of all of God's image bearers, then there's a great amount of responsibility and a great amount of power that has been presumed for us to have. But this is what happened, right? Because we were created in a good creation, in a good world. It has been disordered by sin. The world has been disordered by sin and by the fall. It is being reordered in Christ until ultimately its fullness and its completeness, its shalom, is found in him. You with me so far? Like I said, these are online. You can go back and listen to them. Not while driving, though, because that's weird. Now, where's Micah step in? Micah steps in here. He's saying to the leaders, to the households, 
that they're the ones who are responsible for doing justice. Micah's saying that you, you are the ones who have been assigned to act justly and to be the compassionate and the merciful, especially to the people who have been marginalized. Listen to how Micah confronts them in verses two and three. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So do you know who did that horrible stuff? The Assyrians are the ones who did that awful stuff to their enemies, The Assyrians would come and flay people and grind them up and throw them into pots. And what Micah is saying, what the prophet of God is saying to the leaders of God's people is that you are acting no better than the enemies of the state. You're acting no better than them. This is what functionally you're doing to them. So Micah is saying that the leaders are effectively doing what the enemies of the nation do to them. So, how might we then uh, define misused power? We might understand it this way from Dr. Stephen Ohm. He says this, misused power is taking the influence God has given you for the sake of the common good and using it against others for selfish gain. See, do you hear the argument we're building, right? All of us, because we're image bearers of God, have been given power. That's part of what was woven into creation. He told man, and you shall have dominion over the earth, right? Sin came in, corrupted man's man's appropriation of his power under the lordship of God. He then sought after his own gain, his own worth, his own value, and his own delight at um, at the ignoring of God and at the ignoring of other people. For the redeemed in Christ, there is recreation. There is new life. There is new birth. There is now a renewal, a call back to begin to interact with the world as God's stewards, as God's vice regents, as we were intended. Not any longer as sons of the first Adam, but sons of the better Adam, Jesus. You with me? Look at how the indictment that Micah is bringing continues in verse 11. Look at what it says. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. The accusation is not just against the political leaders, but it's against the religious leaders as well. Look at verse 5. It seems to say... In verse 5, when someone puts a, a hearty meal in front, of, in front of the prophet, the message they preach is a message of peace. When someone doesn't put a hearty meal in front of the prophet, the message changes to war. So how does God, how does God respond to this misused power? Look at verse 4. 
Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. In other words, God will not hear from the religious leaders when they call to him. And look what else he says in verses 6 through 7. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Micah is saying to them, you have used your power, you have used your position and only spoken for those who are like you. You've not advocated for or spoken for those who are unlike you. Those who lack power and position. So if you're not going to speak truth to those who need to hear it, God says to them, why am I going to speak truth to you? Here's the common factor, the common thing that underlies all of the attempts that people make to subjugate, silence, or or minimize people. It comes from the desire to assert the power of one individual over another. It manifests in all sorts of different ways, right? It manifests in discrimination. It manifests in classism. It manifests in idolatry. It manifests in slavery. I was deeply moved by some of the stories that Andy Crouch told in his book where he uh, went to Jakarta, India, and there met up with World Harvest Missions, not World Harvest, um, oh, blast. This is what happens when you're trying to riff an illustration without writing it down. He was working with a world relief organization. And they went to an outlying tiny town where this group was working to free free people who were part of modern slavery. Here's how modern slavery would work in India, right? The, The people that needed forced labor would lend a little bit of money to a family. And then a missed payment would bring disastrous levels of interest. So much so that the family would never be able to repay the debt. And the henchmen and the, um, and the thugs would come and show up at the door. And they'd open the door and they'd peer around to the house. And they'd see a little 10-year-old girl sitting over in the corner of the room. And say, she'll do. And so she goes to work. Making matchsticks. Or what I her a wage, but it's to work for them. They pay her a wage, but it's never enough. It's never enough to free the family from the compounding interest that skyrockets. She is now a functional slave. This is how power gets used throughout the world. Crouch was stunned. On the train ride back, he was still processing all that he saw. How does this speak to us? Because at his core, Micah is talking to all people who use their own power with the attitude that it is there to make their own life better. 
your power, your image bearing is there for you to make your power can also be manifest through the exercise of privilege. In other words, I know to define um, privilege as the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. Here's the way that he describes privilege. I think it was a really helpful illustration. He describes privilege like an author who writes a book and collects royalties, right? All the work has been done, okay? But as the book continues to sell, what does the author then get? Royalties. Has he written anything new? Maybe, but the work that was done from that one book, as that book sells, the author enjoys the privilege of royalties coming in over a period of time. Let me give you another example. In my own life, here's how I was a privileged human being. My parents lived in one town, Greenville, South Carolina, the upstate, God's country, We've lived in two houses. Well, technically three, but functionally two. The house I grew up in, and then the house that I spent the second part of my uh, adolescence and childhood in. And we moved to the house that we did because it was zoned to go to a public high school that was ranked as one of the best high schools in the state. AP classes, college prep scores, the number of teachers that were getting students into really academically rigorous colleges. We had the ability, because of my father's career, to not go work or not go to school at the middle school that my mom taught at one year. The middle school that mom taught at one year was across the railroad tracks. Greenville literally had an east side of Greenville and a west side of Greenville. And in those days, if you went to the west side of Greenville, you walked fast and made sure you know where you parked your car. Crime was terrible. The poverty was endemic. And she worked in a middle school that was serving the population there in that part of town. Now, why did I not have to go to that middle school? And the ability to live in a different part of town. And we abided by the law, and we were zoned in that part of town to go, for me to go to Riverside High School. I didn't do anything to deserve that, but I benefited from it. Make sense? All of us, I think, have experienced this in some way, shape, or form, where something, uh, and this is not new, by the way, this is even, in the, like I said, in the cultural moment in which we live. This was talked about years ago in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. In Gladwell's book, Outliers, he talks about how Steve Jobs and Bill Gates could not have done what they did in the realm of the personal computer had they not been um, at a certain place at a certain time, graduated high school at a certain time, graduated college at a certain time, right when this technological revolution was happening there in Silicon Valley. They were privileged. What happens is when you don't, realize that there are all of these societal, all of these systemic things that are creating this environment for us to all flourish in, we can, be ten- we can tend to misuse power by simply not acknowledging the power that we have. 
How many of you have homes where your air conditioning still is not working today after the power outage last weekend? Right? I want you to feel the tension here. All of this raises hard questions. In what ways might we be using the power and privilege that we have for personal gain? In what ways are we minimizing or uh, demeaning others who have less power, fewer resources than we do? Because you see, this is where, as I said last week, this is all ethics, right? This is all ethics. The church has to be able to talk about ethics. It's not just a matter of right and wrong. It's not just a matter of can we. It's a matter also of should we. Because the Christian ethic goes beyond what right and wrong says. The Christian ethic says, even though it's, even though it's legal, is it right? All right, so next thing, proper use of power. So we see the antithesis of the proper use of power. Look how Micah introduces himself in verse 8. He says this, he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah himself is the inverse of the false prophets. He is filled with the power that comes from the Lord himself, and he leverages this power for the good of the people that God has called him to preach and minister to. Micah is using his power to lead to flourishing. So that's the, the question that we ought to ponder. Do we acknowledge that we have power? And then two, do we choose to use that power for the good of those who are not flourishing rather than just assuring that we and those near us will flourish? So here's the argument that I'm making. Let me take you all the way back, right? Flourishing is not some sort of uh, flower power, pie in the sky, um, uh, liberal social renovation project. Lots of loaded buzzwords there. Flourishing, rooted in creation, right? God gave us as his image bearers the authority, the right, and the responsibility to promote the cultivation and the flourishing of this good creation, which then was marred by sin which God has then said, there will come a day when redemption will come. Redemption has come in Jesus, both in what he has done, is doing, and still will yet one day do. As part of the new creation, anticipating the day of the fulfillment of the new creation, we are working now, uh, taking up the mantle both of the great commandment to love God and love neighbor, as well as the great commission to preach and declare the good news of Jesus. So what does it look like for us to use power rightly? Here's a few things. First of all, properly used power exposes falsehood. Properly used power exposes falsehood even when it's in our own lives. So Dr. Dan Allender says this, that true leaders lead with a limp. True leaders lead with a limp. It takes strength to admit our own weakness. Second thing, properly used power seeks the good of others. It's willing to embrace personal sacrifice so that others might gain. See, Micah could have gone right along with all the other prophets and gotten him a square meal in front of him and preached a fine, ear-tickling message, but he didn't, did he? 
he preached the word of the Lord in spite of what all could happen to him as a prophet of God. It's willing to embrace personal sacrifice so that others might gain. Or to put it another way, it refuses to sacrifice others for personal gain. Here's the third thing. Properly used power leads to flourishing. It makes all the difference as to whether or not you use your use of power is leading to flourishing or famishing, restoration or ruin. You with me? How's all this linked? Well, look what Paul says in the New Testament. In speaking to his young protege, Timothy, he says this in 2 Timothy uh, 1.7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of what? Power and love and self-control. So I want to go back for a minute and revisit um, now the first two and last two chapters of the scriptures. God has invested in us the responsibility as his image bearers to subdue and cultivate in this great garden empire that we are all a part of so that we will bring glory to God alone. There is then in this time that is after fall and prior to resurrect and after resurrection, but pre-return of Christ, no gap between redeemed worship and redeemed power. There's no difference. You can't put them in separate categories and say they're not, they're, one's more important than the other. They are so closely linked together, they must walk hand in hand, side by side. Okay? Let me once again turn to Andy Crouch to explain this. He says, evangelism is not an end in itself. It is the means to an end restoring the image bearer's capacity for relationship and worship where the true creator God is named, known, and blessed. Evangelism gives us the name of the God who made us, the son who redeemed us, and the spirit who empowers us to be reborn in the image of the son. Without evangelism, Eve's and Adam's descendants after Eden would never know the full story. They would never know the identity of the true image bearer. Just as important, apart from the redeeming and empowering gift of salvation, they will never be fully able to bear the image themselves. They will remain captive to idols, false gods that can never deliver what they promise rather than coming to know and imitate the true God who gives abundance and gave himself to fulfill his promises. And doing justice, Crouch says, is likewise also the means to an end, the means to shalom, that rich Hebrew word for peace, for fullness, describing the conditions where every creature can be fully, truly, gloriously itself, most of all where God's own image bearers bear that image in all its fullness, variety, and capacity. The work of justice is to restore the conditions that make image-bearing possible. The work of justice is to restore the conditions that make image-bearing possible. 
without justice, without the kind of restoration that reopens the way to dignified, delighted, image-bearing, it is much less likely that the good news about the true image-bearer will be believed even when it's proclaimed. And even if Adam's and Eve's children have heard and believed the story of restored image bearing without the work of justice, they will not be able to participate in it. They will be prevented from the dominion and tending of the world they were made for. And the world and their fellow image bearers will continue to groan under exploitation and diminishment, defying the will of God for his own creation. Do you know who the greatest advocates now in Jakarta, India, for freedom and ransom for slaves? Little kids who have been freed and ransomed from slavery who have been restored their God-given place to take dominion over the world and to declare to those in captives the name of Jesus, the true image bearer, and the rights that they all have as, as made in the image of God to participate in this full, glorious work. Crouch says this, he says, the result of both real evangelism And real doing of justice is the restoration of the image of the only true God in the world. The image cannot be restored without naming the name and telling the story of the one true creator God. So all serious efforts for justice must be connected to evangelism. And the image cannot be restored without God's own image bearers taking up their true identity and calling and having the capacity to fulfill that calling. So all evangelism must be connected to efforts to create the conditions where every image bearer can experience full dignity and agency. Ultimately, the reason for both the work of evangelism and the work of justice is not simply the relief of suffering, whether present or eternal. It is the restoration of God's true image in the world made known in the one true image and icon, Jesus Christ, and refracted and reflected in fruitful, multiplying image bearers set free by his death and resurrection to reclaim their true calling. Our mission is not primarily driven by a calculation of which suffering, whether it is present suffering or eternal suffering, needs to be relieved most urgently. It is rather the fruit of glorious promises that call us into a new kingdom where the world is full of truth-bearing images. See, it's not a, it's not a binary. It's not either or. It's not which suffering do we care more about, present or eternal. It is instead about what is our God-given calling as those who have been made and redeemed in the image of Jesus. It's not to go back and cultivate a little garden called Eden. Oh, no, 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 no. That requires too little imagination. The calling that is upon us is not to go back and recreate some tiny little Eden, but rather to see Eden become an empire where the whole world is filled with the image of God, where there is not a single 
single molecule that is not proclaiming, belonging to, and magnifying Jesus. As I said earlier this morning, I'm not interested in advocating for or building an apologetic for a present cultural moment that we find ourselves in. I'm interested instead in announcing what the scriptures teach. That's why I'm seeking to stay very close to the text. The political and religious leaders of Micah's day were using both position of power to exploit the poor and the marginalized, and we can see this happening. We can also see how the poor and the marginalized have been exploited in our own day. And our task is not to make the world right. Our task, singularly, is to worship, praise, glorify, and magnify God himself. And as I've said over and over and over and over and over again, the task is not uh, an individual project first. It's not just me and Jesus and that's all I need. It is a communal project. It is the holy Catholic apostolic church. In his book on missions, John Piper says this. He said, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions is temporary. Worship is eternal. One day, missions will cease. Worship will endure forever. God did not create us to set the world right. God created us in a right world to worship him. Sin overtook the world. God conquered sin through Jesus. And God, through Christ, is now making all things new. As vice regents and co-heirs with Christ, we join in the spirit-empowered task of cultivation. But not as an end to itself. It is rather a giant banner pointing towards our true hope, which is the renewal of power. It's the shortest point of all. It's where we finish. Micah's name means who is like God. And as we continue to see, the answer over and over again is no one. No one is like God. Micah can only point to the bad news in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. In the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Because of the actions of the leaders of Zion, Zion will receive judgment, but this is only a warning. There can always be another outcome. Remember, prophets were not fortune tellers. There was always always a possibility of a change in outcome. When Jonah preached the worst sermon ever, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. What did they do? They said, perhaps God will relent. And what did God do? God relented. Did that make Jonah's warning wrong? No. Did it make God's grace greater? Yes. How is is power ultimately transformed? The rest of the scriptures answer the question that Micah begs. It is through love. It is in Jesus that we saw the victim of the most flagrant and egregious abuse of power, both by politicians and religious leaders alike. It is in this Jesus that it took the most powerful to become to come as the most humble. Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to what Micah says about, uh, to the leaders in verses 9 through 10. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now look at what Jesus did. Jesus built Zion and Jerusalem too, but not with the blood of others, but his own. How do we begin to see this in our own lives? I think for starters, 
we should recognize that many of us have operated with a truncated, shortened Bible. Many of us have not seen the mandate that God has given to his creation and to us in it. We've rejected the idea that working for flourishing is part of the Christian narrative. Penned with you this morning that perhaps it's not an ancillary part, a side part, but it's core to the message. There cannot be no right image bearing without image restoration. There cannot be room for flourishing without addressing the things that are causing the flourishing to be strangled. Why is it that Christian relief organization and love for him? So what about you? Let's allow God and his word and his spirit to recalibrate some of the things that maybe you've held on to.